0: Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, and welcome to New Books and Philosophy, a podcast channel with the New Books Network. I'm Carrie Figdor, Professor of Philosophy at the University of Iowa, and I'm co-host of the channel along with Robert Talese, Alexis McLeod, and Sarah Tyson. Together, we bring conversations with philosophers about their new books in a wide range of areas of contemporary philosophical inquiry. Today's interview is with Kyle Johansson, adjunct assistant professor of philosophy at Queen's University. His new book, Wild Animal Ethics: The Moral and Political Problem of Wild Animal Suffering, is just out from Routledge. Many sentient or possibly sentient wild animals follow a reproductive strategy whereby they have very large numbers of offspring, the vast majority of which suffer and die quickly or suffer and die slowly. Either way, There is a huge amount of suffering in the wild, and it is a truism in ethics that we have a duty to alleviate or prevent unnecessary suffering. If we could intervene in nature to prevent the suffering, shouldn't we? In his new book, Johansson argues that we do have this duty. On his view, the value of unspoiled nature only conflicts with botched interventions, not effective ones and we already do intervene effectively in ways that do help wild animals, such as through rabies vaccinations that are intended primarily to protect domesticated animals. But through gene editing or other methods, we could do quite a bit more. For example, create a three-week window from birth whereby newborns do not suffer from pain, or even more drastically turn carnivores into herbivores. Johansson, Offers a provocative discussion of this relatively neglected issue of animal welfare and also offers some recommendations on how we can address it. Let's turn to the interview. Hello, Kyle Johansson. Welcome to New Books in Philosophy. Hi, Carrie. Thanks for having me. I'm really excited about this book. I mean, it was very, very provocative to say the least. uh, it just raised a lot of really interesting issues and, and sort of comes to conclusions that make me feel like that can't possibly be the right thing, uh, which is always interesting because it means you know, that you have, have to have some you know, fairly plausible arguments you know, for conclusions that, that just seem like crazy. right? Um, so before we get to wild animal ethics, the moral and political problem of wild animal suffering, um, tell us a bit about yourself, right? What your philosophical interests are, your, your sort of, um, you know, how you came to write the book, um, you know, a bit, a bit about yourself as a philosopher.
1: Okay. Yeah, sure. Um, well, just, um, in terms of my, uh, I guess, general background, uh, so I'm a Canadian fellow, uh, grew up in Brampton, which is a, a suburban city, not too far from Toronto. It's about uh, a forty-minute drive, kind of northwest of Toronto. Um, I uh, I went to Queen's University. That's where I did my um, PhD in philosophy, uh, and I uh, I studied under Christine Sipnowich, um and wrote my thesis about uh, a variety of issues in uh, distributive justice. Um, so I'm, I'm I'm a political philosopher. But um, when I was uh, you know doing my coursework at Queen's. I took a, a grad course with uh, with Will Kimlicka, and uh, at the time, um, Will Kimlicka and his partner Sue Donaldson uh, were in the process of writing a, a book called Zoopolis, which um, at this point, if, if if one is someone who does work in animal ethics, one probably knows the, the name of that book. It's done quite well. And um, in, in this course I took with uh, with Will Kimlicka, um, basically what, what the course was, it was the first time he taught a course like this. And... The course was basically just like the, the manuscript of Zoopolis. So we went through the manuscript, and we went through all the different um, articles that he and Sue had been reading while doing research for the manuscript. And uh, one of the chapters in that book is about wild animals in particular, and about the uh, obligations that we owe to to wild animals. And uh, it was really it was taking that course that got me that got me thinking about um, what what obligations we might owe to wild animals, particularly in light of the of the various harms that they suffer. Uh, in the wild, and uh, and that that's what got me started working on on animal ethics. So now now I I don't just work in political philosophy. I also do a lot of my work in um, in animal ethics with a with a focus on wild animals.
0: Okay, good. Yeah, not you know typically. I mean, as you would be aware, you know a lot of the you know animal welfare and rights um, issues usually deal with domesticated animals, right? You know, factory farms and all that kind of stuff. Um, and, you know, it does touch on wild animal ethics as well, but, um, not, not to, um, uh, not, not to this degree. It's more, it's generally more specific, I think, in the focus, um, you know, in terms of saving habitat or something like that. Um, so you, you, you start out, um, you know, being very challenging, you know, what, what's so great about nature, right? I mean, we all know it's, um uh you know i think hobbes you know solitary poor nasty brutish and short and i guess you know the poverty and the you know solitariness is not necessarily true of all animals uh humans or otherwise but you you know you certainly make it clear that uh for the vet for the majority you know and i don't know how big a majority that you know these numbers are not really um comprehensible um you know, life is uh, as you put it. You know, they ha- You know, for many animals, um, they have a lot of young. It's the what you call what's called or what you call the R strategy, as opposed to the K strategy, which you might explain. Um, so they have a lot of infants. The infants aren't really, you know, get a lot of care. Uh, And as you put it, they kind of crawl around for a while and then, you know, either they die a a quick and painful death or a a long and slow and painful death. But both ways, you know, it's like a nasty, horrible, uh, short, um, hungry, painful life. Um, And so this kind of sets up a basic you know, problem that, you know, lives like these are usually not, you know, considered to be flourishing lives, and they often may not even be lives that are worth living, right? Um, so this is, uh, this kind of establishes for you a basic argument. So maybe you could s- tell us just, you know, what's the our strategy versus the case strategy? And and what's what's the basic problem here that you are raising?
1: Right. Okay. Sure. So, um, yeah, I think um, this distinction between the R strategy and the K strategy is probably the most, maybe the single most important idea in the book. It's sort of the, the focus of the book. Um, and uh, yeah, for, so for people who don't know about um, about these terms, um, uh, these these uh, terms are. I mean, they they're a little they're a little old actually. Like they um, were coined back in the '70s, I think, and they're associated with um, uh, a theory of uh, population dynamics that is no, no longer accepted, but, but the, the terms don't you don't have to locate the terms within the theory. The terms have just become classificatory terms to refer to. animals in species who have certain reproductive behaviors. So you don't, you can forget about like for anyone who knows about the theories that, that these terms were associated with, you can forget about those theories. I, I'm not committed to those theories, and no, and no one who's writing on this subject is. Um, so we're just using these terms in a classificatory manner, and case, case strategists would be animals who are ki- kind of like us a lot of the time, um, uh, they're animals who have small numbers of offspring, and who devote um, a large amount of energy into each individual offspring. So case strategist parents devote large amount of energy, a large amount of energy into each individual offspring, and they don't have very many offspring. Um, so we, we, you know, we do this, we have... You know, a few kids, maybe maybe we have more than a few sometimes. maybe we only have one, but we don't we don't have that many. We don't have no parent has like a hundred or two hundred <laughs> offspring or five hundred offspring in the human species. Um, and And there's lots of animals that are that are like that too. They'll only have one child or or they'll only have three or four children or whatever. And because they're having so few children and devoting so much energy into ensuring that their children have a decent shot at life and and you know th- th- this energy could be, straightforward kind of just physical or biological energy. Um, so case strategists often have offspring that are larger and more well-developed um, upon birth. Like They've already gone through quite a lot of physical development upon birth. Um, and, and But the energy can also be uh, social energy. So lots of case strategist parents don't just give birth to larger, more well-developed offspring, but they'll actually care for their offspring for a long period of time uh, to the point where their offspring are relatively competent and able to manage dangers on their own. Um, K strategist offspring—they um, they, they have a reasonably decent shot at life because so much energy is devoted into each individual offspring. Um, a K strategist um, infant is you know, depends on the species, but relatively likely, certainly more likely than our strategist than an r strategist infant, to reach maturity and re- and reproduce. Um, the R strategy is just is just the opposite kind of of the K strategy. Um, the R strategy, R strategist parents don't have small numbers of offspring. They have very large numbers of offspring. Um, In the case of small mammals who are our strategists, this would often be something like dozens of offspring. But in other species, like fish species, it could be thousands or millions of offspring. And um, the idea is to uh, just play a kind of numbers game here. So, I mean, uh, in, 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 in nature, animals are trying to protect their genes. They want it to be the case that they have some offspring who survive to maturity and reproduce because then their genes get passed on. And and one way of ensuring this, one way of ensuring that your genes get passed on, is to just have as many offspring as possible. Because if you have you know, like a thousand offspring, then even if those offspring are terribly incompetent and are getting eaten all the time and are starving, some of them will survive. Like a few of them will probably survive, and and reach maturity and reproduce. And so that's that's how that's how the R strategy works. And um, yeah, the the the, the if if you, if you're you know someone who does work in animal ethics and you think. You know, sentient beings are morally important. They have, you know, interests that we ought to take into consideration when deciding what our obligations are. If you, if you, if you have that kind of stance and you think about wild animals and the way they reproduce, you, you should be really, really disturbed by the way things work in nature because um, it, means that the, it means that wild animals are doing really, really badly for the most part. Most, most individual wild animals are either not living flourishing lives at, you know at the, at the very best or they're not living lives that are that are worth living at all um, because most individual animals are our strategists right most uh you know there's various case strategist species various R strategist species but because so many because our strategists have such uh, such higher birth rates most individual animals born into the world are our strategist animals and they're living these sorts of lives really short lives where they die either from you know predation or from starvation or from exposure or from dehydration or from disease Um, yeah, if you're, if you're, if you think, you know, individual and individual sentient animals are morally significant, this state of affairs should be something that really, really disturbs you. And it that, that, that thought should, should prompt you to wonder whether there's anything we could do about it. Because if we, if if there are things we can safely do about it, then presumably as a matter of, of beneficence or humanitarian assistance, we, we ought to do something about it. And that's the basic, that's the sort of main idea in the book,
0: I guess. Okay. Yeah, good. Um, so you know, we'll we'll get to the question. You know, can we do anything about it? You know, or should should yeah. we first before the can? Um, but uh, so you mentioned sentience, and and that's uh, you know. So a lot of the R strategists, and we're talking about lots of species in nature. Well, you know the you know when we think of K strategists, we're we're thinking probably of the you know. I don't know, megafauna, things like that. Um, and, uh, you know, we're, we're not thinking of, uh, I don't know, you know, um, sea turtles or uh, fruit flies or, you know, I, I don't know. I don't know where rabbits would fall in this. I guess the rabbits would be an R strategist, um, although they do care, take care of the young to some extent. So I, I don't know. But in any case, we're, uh, the, the sentience aspect is not uh, not trivial, um, and it's also very questionable, like, where, where, you know, which of these many R strategists are, you know, plausibly um, sentient. So maybe you could give example of, you know, your typical or many, you know, R strategists, and, and where do they, where do they plausibly fall in the sentience line.
1: Right. Okay. So, um, so this, I, I know you didn't phrase it as an objection, but this sort of thought is often like one of the first objections that um, occurs to people when they're, uh, when they're presented with the idea of wild animal suffering and, and the various facts associated with it. Um, and so, yeah, the, the objection more or less that often people put forward is, well, look, um, uh, the our strategy sounds like, like it's terrible uh, if we assume that, that our strategists are, are sentient, but but aren't most our are, are strategists not sentient? I mean, um, insects tend to be our strategists. Um, insects have may, may, it depends on the species, but but a lot of insect species have very you know, the parents will have very very large numbers of offspring, and it's really unclear which insects which insects are sentient, which ones aren't. I mean, in, insects are invertebrates; they um, don't have um, central nervous systems or, or ones that kind of do. They're not anything like ours. Um, uh, but, but because insects are invertebrates um, it's, un- it's unclear whether they're sentient they might be but we don't know there's like a high level of uncertainty with respect to whether most insects are sentient um, and this is true of some other, of some other our strategists too um, so um, am- amphibians tend to be to be our strategists and I think it's fairly clear that um, adult amphibians are sentient but um, a lot of amphibians uh, they're young go through a larval stage uh, when they're born and it's unclear whether larval amphibians are sentient because their level of cognitive development is fairly minimal. And a, a lot of the just you know, amphibian infants who are who are dying would have been they would have been in their, their larval stage when they die. Um so the, yeah, these sorts of questions make you, you, you it's worth wondering, you know, to what extent the death of our involves the death of the you know sort of painful death of sentient beings. Um and and I think I think this sort of uncertainty is important, and I think. Um, it would be hasty for anyone who cares a lot about wild animal suffering to conclude that most R strategists are sentient. I don't think that it's clear that most R strategists are sentient. It may be the case that most of them aren't. Um, But one thing I think that is clear is that most sentient individuals born into the world are R strategists. Um, So the thought here is that um, the R strategy is a really quite common um, reproductive strategy. It's not just common amongst Amphibians and amongst insects, it's common amongst lizards. It's common amongst mammals. Like a lot of small mammals are more or less our strategists. You know, they are strategists to a lesser degree than sea turtles are or fish are, but they're still much more our strategists than than we are or than large mammals are. And just given how common the R strategy is, um, it seems seems like it's almost certainly the case that even if not even if the scope of sentience ends up being fairly narrow. So, so, so for example, suppose that we, I think, implausibly assume, because uh, I, I think this is, cert- this is probably false, but suppose that we implausibly assume that only mammals are sentient. We, we have a very conservative view of sentience. We say, we know mammals are sentient, but, but you know, we're going to say that other, one, other, other animals aren't. Um, e- even if that were the case, even if only mammals were sentient, it would still be the case that most sentient individuals born into the world are our strategists. And the reason is because most mammals born into the world are our strategists. Now, it's not, it's not necessarily the case the most mammalian species are our strategists, but most individual mammals born into the world are our strategists. And this just follows from the fact that our strategists have far, far higher birth rates than, uh, than case strategists do. Um, so I think that even, so I, I think it's, it's, you know, people working on wild animal suffering should acknowledge that maybe most, it might be the case that most our strategists aren't sentient. But they should nonetheless emphasize that it seems to almost certainly be the case that most sentient individuals born into the world uh, are our strategists. And so it's still it's still gonna be true that most sentient individuals live lives like this. They live these really short lives where they die from a really, really painful cause.
0: Good. Okay, yeah. good. Um so then like rap rabbits would be our strategists.
1: Yeah, you know, I, I don't know enough about and, rabbits example, to comment on, on yeah. rabbits in particular. I think it's it's worth keeping in mind that um Although it's sort of convenient to talk about the R strategy and the K strategy as if it's a, a, a dichotomy between two just completely different concepts, um, that convenience is uh, is inaccurate, uh, or it gives you it gives one a misleading impression of how it works. It's it would be better to think of it as a spectrum, where uh, you might think of like Uber K strategists on one side of the spectrum, and then kind of like Uber R strategists on the other side of the spectrum. Like an Uber K strategist would be a K strategist that normally only gives birth to one uh, one or one or two offspring over the course of their life, of their entire life. And those offspring usually survive. Like it's very rare for them to die. And I think, I think blue whales are like that. Blue whales have very, very few offspring. Um, I'm not, you know, I'm not an expert on whales or anything. Um, And then Uber, like Uber, our strategists would be um, like sunfish. Sunfish give uh, sometimes lay like millions of eggs. Um, And uh, so, so yeah, so you you would see that. And then, then there's tons of stuff that sort of falls, falls in between and, you know, rabbits are probably more our strategists than we are, but they're probably more K strategists than certain other small mammals and certainly more K strategists than like sea turtles or, or fish.
0: Okay, yeah, so, good. Yeah. Okay. That's, that was helpful. Um, so, um, so I say, well, uh, okay well that's you know nature's red in tooth and claw and that's just kind of the way it is i mean you know we you know nature nature is just that way um what uh, you know how does this become a, a a moral obligation on our part um could you could you explain that you know to 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 do something about this i mean to intervene in nature i mean that in itself i mean this was uh, this was one of the, you know, sort of confounding, you know, issues in the book was, is that you're, you end up arguing for this really, really kind of extreme ways of intervening in nature and, and when many, you know, animal, you know, rights activists and welfareists and everything are all like, you know, we should we should not be intervening in nature. We should try to get more, you know, habitat and stay out of it and let it do its thing. And you're kind of doing like just the opposite, which is so bizarre. <laughs> so, why do you, th- you know, uh, okay, there is this, you know, you know, nature read to the clause. I said that. And, you know, it's like, but that's just nature. I mean, we should just we should just let nature run its course. These different strategies are both successful, and you know we shouldn't intervene. I mean, what what is what is the duty that we've got to here? To I mean, what, why should we feel that we have any obligation to inject ourselves into nature as opposed to you know you know pulling ourselves back?
1: Right, yeah, okay, thanks. Um, so one of the chapters in the book is about um, the view that nature is good, um, because it's really common there's a really common view that a lot of people hold the view that nature is is good. Um, and I think that there's kind of two different two different thoughts wrapped up in the view that that nature is good, and they're they're distinguishable, but they're also connected to each other. Um, one of those thoughts is that uh, nature is good because wild animals are living decent lives i think i think a lot of people don't actually know that wild animal suffering is so bad that like, i i think it's a matter of common knowledge that you know predation exists and that um, there's a certain amount of other dangers that wild animals have to face like you know parasites and uh, maybe they get diseases sometimes or whatever but um uh, i think that um, by and large a, a lot of people when they think about what, what it's like to be a wild animal? They're imagining a life that's reasonably good, um, um, you know. I, I, and I think a, certain practices presuppose this. Um, um, so if you uh, if an animal is in, wild animal is injured, um, a lot of people would say, you know, we should you should rehabilitate that wild animal and then you know release that wild animal back into the wild where the where the animal belongs and where the animal will be happy or something like that.
0: Or um, or just to, so I mean. I, or other people will say that's just part of the natural cycle. Let it let what hap- Whatever's going to happen to it, let what's happen because that's just part of nature.
1: Right. Okay. Yeah. So I think I think the the view that nature is good. I think there's two parts of it. Well, one part of it is I think I think a lot of people really do think that that wild animals are typically living decent lives. Um, and I think, but I think the other part of the view is that is that naturalness is a valuable property, and that's a little bit different from just saying that wild animals are are living uh, decent lives. So the view that, that naturalness is a, is a valuable property, I mean, we can, pres- we can predicate naturalness of lots of different things. We might say that a space is a natural space, you know, an att- attractive wilderness, insofar as it hasn't been affected too much by human activity, is natural. Um, we might th- say that some, uh, some products are natural products. So you can, you know, you could have a, a natural food product. Uh, that's you know, And we contrast it with synthetic food products. Or you could have a natural natural cosmetics or something like that that you would contrast with synthetic cosmetics. Um, so you you can predicate naturalness of lots of different things. Um, and I think um, uh, it's popular to think that naturalness is insofar as something is natural, then just all things being equal, that's that's good. Like naturalness makes something more valuable than it otherwise would be. Um, so so in the book, I, I criticize these these views. I think the, these two sort of different but, but interrelated views. And, and the reason I think they're, in, they're interrelated is because um, uh, one might think that um, there's a connection between the welfare of wild animals and the naturalness of wild animals. So I think that some people think that if you try and intervene in nature, you'll just make, to, to benefit animals, or, or not to benefit animals, to do other things, you'll tend to make wild animals' lives worse. And I think that, that creates a kind of clear connection between the claim that naturalness is a valuable property and the claim that uh, wild animals are, are um, better off without us, at least, <laughs> that they should be left right. alone. Um, right. M- m- yeah. Um, but anyway, so so yeah, I, I, I criticize these sorts of pro-nature views in the second chapter of the book. Um, one sort of criticism is just what I've, what I've already mentioned. I, th- I think that people, uh, a lot of people don't, aren't fully aware of how pervasive and severe wild animal suffering is um, they aren't it doesn't occur to them that if you really think about the way reproductive strategies work it, it follows that mo- the vast majority of sentient individuals born into the world live these really short nasty lives um, so I think that's I think that's one thing um, and uh, and I think the reason why um, this doesn't occur to people I think so I think it's, there's probably more than one explanation for why a lot of people just haven't thought about the implications of the R strategy. Um, but one one explanation for this is that our, our strategists, particularly our strategist infants, are easy to ignore. They're not very noticeable to us. Um, when you when we think of wild animals, we tend to think of animals that are that are more like us. They're they're big, they um, are sociable, they're maybe char- they're kind of charismatic, they have personalities, they're cognitively advanced. Um, these are the ones we kind of notice. And and those those sorts of animals, like large mammals and whatnot, are not representative of, of wild animals. They're really just a very, very extremely small fraction of the wild animals who are born into the world. Um, and I think but and, and insofar as we ever do think of our strategists, because sometimes we, we do imagine our strategists. Sometimes you might um, think of um, you know, a crocodile or a bullfrog or something like that if you're imagining a wild animal. Insofar as we do think of our strategists, I think that we normally think of adult our strategists rather than um, infant our strategists. Um, when you're imagining a, a crocodile, you're probably not imagining the little sort of tadpoleish thing that the <laughs> crocodile originally was when it was born. Um, and at, but, 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 but adult our strategists are, are just as unrepresentative of wild animals as. As as case strategists are, because the vast majority of our strategists don't live to maturity; they they die during infancy rather. Um, so I think we we just we have this tendency to to notice certain animals more, um, maybe because they're more like us, or maybe because um, large survivors are just more obvious. When you walk around, you don't notice little tadpole corpses; you notice the you know cro- crocodiles walking around with the bullfrogs hopping around. Uh, you notice the survivors rather than the ones who died. Um, and this is just a this is just a cognitive bias I think produced by um, either by the just visibility of survivors or maybe by our, our tendency to um, notice animals that are more like us more so than than we notice animals that are unlike us, um, and and it produces an an uh, an unrepresentative um, picture of what life is like in the wild. Um, but. Uh, so-
0: yeah, so, okay, yeah, okay, that's, that's fine. So, but, okay. you know, again, you know, it's like, why do we need to, uh, you know, why do we have some sort of a moral obligation or duty to intervene in, the, in, in this situation? Right. Um,
1: <clears throat> well, so with, so with respect to, um, I, so I think that, I think, I think there's kind of like a straightforward answer and then there's more complicated answers that would have to address objections and things like that. But, um, a really straightforward answer is just that, so if you assume that, that wild animals are morally considerable, that their interests matter, uh, including their interest in continuing to live and their interest in not suffering, um, and if and if we combine that sort of moral considerability with the fact that wild animals are living these atrocious lives, well, then we it seems like we have duties of beneficence to do something about it. I think that's a very kind of simple moral argument for, for intervening. Um, but in relation to naturalness, um, so w- one of the things I argue for in chapter two is that uh, insofar as naturalness is, uh, it makes sense to think of it as a valuable property. Um, because if, if, it seems like naturalness being a valuable property is a, is a bar to intervention, right? If naturalness is valuable, intervening right. impedes upon naturalness or decreases naturalness. Insofar as we intervene in nature, we make it less natural. Because that's, that's, just, that's all, all the concept of naturalness is. is um, natural, natural things are things that occur or exist independently of human agency. So if we're if we're going out into nature and messing around with it, we are making it less natural. And if right. if naturalness is valuable, then we are reducing a value by doing that. And so I, and when I'm, when talking about the idea that naturalness is is valuable, um, I argue that um, the best way to understand naturalness's value is in terms of uh, uh, we, we, I think the kind of value it has is extrinsic value that um, is That comes from our epistemic limitations or is associated with our epistemic limitations. So I think the sense in which naturalness is valuable is that um, natural states of affairs are better than non-natural states of affairs produced by botched interventions. And botched interventions are just interventions where you might have tried to do something good, but you made things worse because you didn't understand the natural processes you were intervening in uh, in, in well enough. and natural processes can be processes can be terribly complicated. Ecosystems are terribly complicated things. And um, anytime you intervene in an ecosystem, there's a chance that there'll be some kind of chain reaction that uh, maybe harms a lot of wild animals or harms human beings or whatever. Um, and and there, there's other ways in which um, we can botch interventions too. I think. Um, I think when like when surgery first came around, um, people were <laughs> freaked out about it. I remember reading about this uh, when surgery was first sort of became was first being. Uh, advocated as like a, a potentially desirable medical intervention, people thought it was this crazy idea because um, you know your surgery involves cutting into the human body and removing a part of it, and that just seems like it's it's just maybe maybe it's well intentioned, but you're just going to kill people by doing that. Um, and at first, that was probably a really reasonable worry because surgeons maybe didn't know what they were doing at first. Um, and and I think that I, I think this, this, so. This sort of thought I think makes sense. The thought that. Um, you know, natural, natural states of affairs are kind of complicated and maybe they're not entirely optimal, but if we try and make them better, we'll, we'll mess up and make it worse. I think that that thought makes sense. And it creates a kind of value associated with naturalness. So natural states of affairs are comparatively valuable when you compare them to non-natural states of affairs that, that are produced by botched interventions. Um, but, but this kind of value, it, uh, it goes away as soon as we learn more. So when, when surgeons learned how to do surgery really well, it stopped being the case that um, being sick was better than being operated upon. Being sick was only better than being operated upon when operating on you would, would had a high chance of killing you. But when that goes away, once we learned how to do surgery better, that value is gone. And I think the same is true of other of other interventions. We as w- with respect to any particular intervention in nature, um, we as we learn more about it and get more practice and get better at doing it, they we we get it becomes the case that we we can do it more reliably and. Uh, and get better at producing at good outcomes and I think that's all we need all we need to do in order to um, uh, intervene in nature in in a way that's morally good um, yeah
0: okay good so let's let's get into you know that your suggested interventions because this is I think make this makes makes everything a little a little bit more concrete um Uh, you know, let's assume, you know, okay, lots of, there are lots of wild animals that are, that are suffering and they're living awful lives or maybe even lives not worth living. You know, I don't know, um, you know, if that difference will make a huge difference, but anyway, um, so there is some prima facie case for intervening, uh, to prevent suffering, right? Um, and if naturalness is just, you know, kind of basically fear of, of messing it up in some way, making things worse, well, once we know more, then, you know, if we, if we knew which sorts of interventions might actually improve things and relieve some of the suffering, then, you know, we ought to do them. So what are the sorts of interventions that you kind of have in mind?
1: Sure. Um, so um, so I, I think that there are some... And I, I don't talk about, uh, there's some interventions that I think are very good but that I don't talk about much in the book because I don't think they're as philosophically interesting as other ones. Um, but uh, so some some that I think are just obviously good and uh, and and which other people like to talk about would be sort of medium scale interventions that, um, that we're already doing, but which we could be doing more of for the sake of wild animals. Um, so some of the things that we already do is we, we already vaccinate wild animal populations against diseases when those diseases negatively affect our interests or negatively affect the interests of domesticated animals. So it's fairly common to vaccinate using feeding stations and whatnot to vaccinate wild animal populations against rabies because rabies can negatively affect human beings and it can, when, when human beings are near a wild animal population, and it can negatively affect uh, domesticated animals. And so it's common in, in, for example, the United States and in Canada too vaccinate wild animal populations against rabies. Um, and we're not doing it for the wild animals. People who are doing this aren't thinking, well, right. Rabies must be really bad for wild animals. Let's help them. They're doing it because, because they, they want to help us. We, we're helping ourselves by doing this. Um, but, but inadvertently kind of, or as a bonus, it does, in fact, it does in fact help wild animals. Like rabies is not good for the animals that gets it, that they, that get it. It's a, a very uh, uncomfortable disease that can kill the animals that get it. Um. So, so we, could just, we could just be doing more of that kind of thing. I mean, if we're already vaccinating wild animal populations against the diseases that, that threaten us, we could vaccinate them more comprehensively against diseases that maybe don't threaten us, but just threaten them. And we could, do, we could do other things too. We could start eliminating, for example, non-sentient parasites, or at least reducing the populations of non-sentient parasites that plague wild animals. And that's another thing that we've, that we've done in the past, actually. Um, in the year 2000, I think it was, we managed to eliminate something called the screw fly from North America. And um, the, so the screw fly is this fly that um, lays eggs in uh, in wounds within living mammalian hosts. And the eggs hatch, become maggots, and the maggots eat eat the host alive. And it's really, really nasty. It's debilitating, painful. It's, it's And eventually, it, it tends to kill the animals that, that become infected. Um, and and we got rid of the screw fly in north america around the year 2000 because because it was negatively affecting us it was it was affecting farmers profits it was harming sometimes harming people who lived in i think rural communities in the united states and in mexico and so we managed to um we managed to get rid of it um and and I, so we did that. we did it for human reasons but but by getting rid of the screw fly we massively benefited mammals that live in North America, because like wild mammals that live in North America, because it wasn't mostly human beings and domesticated animals that were being affected by the screwfly. It was wild mammals that screwflies were mostly plaguing. And wild mammals lives are now better because we got rid of the screwfly. Uh, we, we We could just do more of this sort of thing for wild animals sake, we could start eliminating parasites that may not affect our interests at all, but but specifically the ones that affect wild animals interests. And I think that these are kinds of the most obvious things we could do. Um,
0: but, but they're also,
1: sorry, go ahead. Yeah.
0: Oh, uh, no, I was, uh, yeah. no, go ahead. Okay. Okay. Yeah. Yeah, yeah.
1: Um, but, but, so, uh, so these are the obvious things to do, to do, I guess. And, but they're also, um, because they're obvious, they're less philosophically interesting. And so in the book, um, the ones I talk about are, uh, interventions that we could carry out through gene editing. Um, so gene editing is, has become, um, really advanced, um, the most recent, uh, sort of major Advancement in gene editing arguably was the development of, uh, of a technique called CRISPR. Um, CRISPR is really cool because it um, it's way cheaper to use than other gene editing uh, technologies were. Um, so cheap, in fact, that amateurs can use it. And, and they, you, don't, you don't need to be at like, a university or in a, or in a well-funded private lab to use CRISPR. You can buy like CRISPR kits and do your own little CRISPR experiments in your basement if you feel like doing that. <laughs> and so people do things like they produce fluorescent yeast using CRISPR kits and things like this. You can buy them online. Um, and so the other cool thing about CRISPR, though, is that um, uh, so it's yeah it's super cheap. Um, it seems like it's capable of creating lots of different traits. We've already used it to to do a bunch of different things. Um, so, for example, it's been used to um, create hornless cows. So it's being used in agriculture to some extent. Hornless cows were created using it. Um, bovine, or sorry, uh, uh, cows that um, are resistant to tuberculosis were created using CRISPR. Um, CRISPR was used to um, create mosquitoes that don't carry the malaria parasite, that are incapable of carrying the malaria parasite. That's already been done in the laboratory. Um, CRISPR has been uh, used to create... Or sorry, I'm not sure if CRISPR was used for this, but other earlier gene editing technology, at least, was used to create um, mice that are incapable of suffering. And it's certainly the case that CRISPR could be used to do do the same thing. Um, I mean, they could be um, filthy. Well, yeah, so they, they... they could feel pain, kind of, um, but they couldn't suffer. Uh, so there's a distinction that I draw in the book between um, dimensions of right. pain. Yeah,
0: yeah, yeah. That's so that's um, right.
1: Uh, so there's this. So, it's and this isn't a distinction that I came up with. It's something that um, is pretty commonplace now. But so there's a, a distinction to be made between one sensory experience of pain and the and the affective dimension of pain. So one's actual like the the one's. Um, Feeling of pain—the feeling of pain that one has when a painful experience occurs—versus the extent to which one's pain bothers you, um, or the extent to which your pain bothers you. Um, and so, suffering. The thought is that suffering is a bit of both. In order to suffer, you have the sensory ex- experience of pain, but your pain also really bothers you a lot, um, enough so that maybe it prevents you from doing other things you want to do and uh, makes your life really bad. What um, What happened with these animals is they were designed with the with the mice in these experiments is that they were designed they were made to not care much about their pain. Uh, a particular part of their brain was was affected, so that even though they could still experience pain, and even though you know, it, it, I guess they cared about it enough that they wanted to avoid it, um, it didn't bother them that much. It didn't reduce their quality of life nearly as much as pain pain normally would. Um, so uh, yeah. Anyways, um. Oh yeah. So, so, I, I don't know. I'm kind of rambling about about. No,
0: things. no. You're you're <laughs> you're yeah. you're you've raised a number of these, you know, intervention types, and I think you know each of them. Uh, you know, sort of individually sounds, uh, you know, ha- has some plausibility to it. But, um, you know, so when you you talked about, you know, eliminating the, uh, the non-sentient, you know, parasites, right? Um, well, you might as well just say, you know, well, let's just eliminate all the um, uh, problematic uh, species, whatever, that are, probably don't feel anything, Um, uh, and, and, you know, just kind of get rid of that whole thing, um, which would, it's, you know, it seems like the obvious, you know, problem there is, is just going to destabilize the whole ecosystem. Um, and then on the other hand, you know, with, again, with the gene editing thing, it's like, you know, fine, sort of, but, um, you know, now again, you're, you're kind of getting into issues about, um. Uh, you know, it, it's it's not a matter of say, and I remember reading this in a paper uh, about where where chickens that were you know like deliberately blinded, you know, I, I I don't know if it was by CRISPR or or some other genetic manipulation, you know, uh, maybe just breeding. Um, uh, whereas, like you know, chickens who are blind don't suffer as much from the overcrowding in your typical you know poultry raising. Um, operation so let's just you know let's just raise these you know blind chickens um well that's i mean it's that sounds horrible uh when we're just talking about domesticated animals but now we're talking about intervention in the genetic of of wild animals and and that seems to be like you know like you know, if, if anything worse. And I don't, so there's, you know, one is the problem of, you know, if you intervene in the one way, it seems like, you know, massive ecosystem collapse is, is almost, you know, inevitable. On the other hand, you've got this, you know, again, and, and, you know, maybe it's just an intuitive moral, you know, repulsion. Uh, You know, you're, you're, Intervening on these animals to uh, you know uh, you know change them from carnivores to herbivores, or um, eliminate their capacity to suffer, or something along you know some very very significant. These are not minor interventions; these are major interventions on, into the whole lifestyle of the species, and that seems wrong as well. So how do you how do you respond to those two problems? Okay, sure.
1: Um- so yeah, you you, 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 you know you, you brought up uh, the thought that um, you know one option if you wanted to intervene in nature to reduce suffering, one option is you could uh, try and get rid of wild animals because if they're not around they uh, they can't suffer um, and in, in particular, if you know our strategists are if your average our strategist is living such a bad life that it's not even worth living at all, you would you'd benefit our strategists by um, reducing their population sizes by preventing them from reproduce from reproducing because most of them are better off not being born. Um, so uh, so I think, I, I, I think um, one, one thing I think that is worth doing, and it reflects the thought that our strategist infants probably don't live lives worth living. One thing that I think is worth doing, if we could do it safely, would be to find ways to lower our strategist birth rates and to make um, their, the young that are born um, more resilient so that they're more likely to survive and reach maturity and uh, and reproduce. And if we were to do this sort of thing with our strategists, that would be really just the same thing as turning them into K strategists because what makes something an r strategist versus a K strategist is just how you know the size of their litter or the size of their of their clutches um, combined with the amount of energy that's invested into each individual infant. So if we could just get our strategists to produce fewer infants and to invest more energy into, into them, that would be just that's just the same thing as turning them into K strategists. And I think this is something we could try to do with gene editing. But I I also think that a lot of research would be would be needed to, um, to make it safe. And it may turn out that um, we wouldn't we wouldn't be able to do anything like this on a large scale safely. I think I think it's unclear because I mean hypothetically, um, you know obviously if you're if you're reducing if you're doing something like reducing our strategist um, litter sizes, then that's going to have ecological repercussions. There'll be, for example, fewer our strategist babies for predators to eat. And so predators might end up um, going hungry or something like that. And but but you know with CRISPR being so amazing, um, maybe we could do things to help the predators to try to try and offset the ecological consequences of reducing our strategist uh, litter sizes or clutch sizes. So maybe we could find some alternative food source for predators. Maybe make like design a plant that predators would find attractive and would be able to eat or something like that. We could try to do this with with gene editing. But and and it, you know it's worth thinking about. Um, these sorts of possibilities I think and it I think it's also just given how bad wild animal suffering is I think we have strong moral reasons to to do the kind of research that would be necessary to figure out you know, wh- whether whether these kinds of interventions are feasible and whether they could ever be done in an ecologically safe manner um and and, and so and, and so my own I, I actually don't know whether they they're whether those sorts of dramatic interventions are either feasible or safe but I think it's worth figuring out whether they're feasible or safe um, but um with respect to some of the other um, uh, potential interventions, so um, you, you mentioned um, re- r- removing the capacity to suffer. That's something else I consider in, in uh, my chapter on gene editing. Um, I think that that one is less iffy than trying to change um, species behaviors. Um, like, so try, trying to do something like changing carnivores into herbivores or changing our uh, strategists into case strategists that would have massive ecological probably repercussions, and so it's you know that people are I think uh, reasonably skeptical about about such interventions. Um, but but uh, re- so removing the capacity to suffer from certain animals that one if done correctly um, would make a huge difference, and I think it it probably is much less risky. So what what I have in mind is um, uh, so I mentioned there's this distinction between mere pain and suffering. Um, so when one suffers, one doesn't just have the sensory experience of pain, but also cares a lot about the pain that they're having and their, their, their pain bothers them a lot. And it's possible to remove, we've already done it in the laboratory, right? With mice, it's possible to, to remove the capacity for suffering without removing the capacity for mere pain or, or just the sensory experience of pain. So you can leave intact all the, you can leave intact feelings of pain and, and also the sort of avoidance behavior associated with that, uh, while also removing the capacity for suffering. And um, particularly if we could do this for just a fa- a period of our strategist lives. So if we could do it, make it the case that our strategists young are unable to suffer for, say, like the first three weeks of their lives or something like that, um, that would make it the case that um, uh, they're, they're not going to suffer during the period of, the, of their lives where they're most likely to be experiencing harms and most likely to, to die a really terrible death. Um, it would basically, it would be, it'd be kind of like this, just the same thing as giving them a big genetic Tylenol or a big genetic shot of morphine during the period of their lives where they're most likely to die really terribly. And I, and it's, it's hard to, I mean, maybe there would be some ecological repercussions associated with that, but it's hard to see what they would be. And if, if there were ecological repercussions, they'd probably be way, way smaller, way less pervasive than the sorts of repercussions that would be associated with turning um, our strategists into k strategists or carnivores into herbivores, and so I, although it might seem counterintuitive to say that we should, you know, temporarily remove the the capacity to suffer from from our strategists, um, I think the only reason it seems so counterintuitive is because um, we have it stuck in our heads that naturalness is a good thing. So even if I successfully argue, <laughs> as, I, as I hope I do in the book, that naturalness only has this particular kind of extrinsic value associated with it that comes from our epistemic limitations, even if I'm right about that. I'm not going to change people's intuitions by just arguing that like it takes, you have to, changing your intuitions takes a while. You have to think for a while and reflect on your, on your emotional reactions to different things. Um, so I think, I think really the only reason it seems so great, it, it might still seem crazy to, or, or counterintuitive to temporarily remove suffering from our strategists. is just because it seems unnatural and that that's kind of weird for people.
0: Yeah. Yeah. And, and of course, um, you know, there are, there's plenty of suffering Outside of that, so so I guess the idea is yeah. yes, but this would this would prevent a great deal of it. Is that yeah, the idea? that's
1: right. Yeah. So okay. um, what, one thing um, I'm sort of conscious of doing throughout the book is um, distinguishing between um, ways in which interventions can be good. Um, so I think that um, r- removing the R strategy, so so turning R strategists into K strategists, or turning carnivores into herbivores. Um, I think that. Um, you might, you might sort of associate that kind of Im- implementation or that kind of um, intervention with maybe ideal theory. Um, so you might think a state of affairs, you know, na- uh, an ecosystem where all, there were only herbivores and where there were only case strategists, an ecosystem that was like that and that functioned well would be an ideal ecosystem. And if we could ever bring such an ecosystem about without violating a whole bunch of deontic, deontic, deontic constraints on, on the implementation of ideals, if we could ever do that, that would be a great thing to do. Um, but it's unclear whether we could do that, or if if we ever can do it, we might not be able to do it for all ecosystems. Maybe only for some. Um, and that's that's the kind of view I have about um, about behavior change, about changing our strategists into case strategists or carnivores into herbivores.
0: Mm-hmm. Um,
1: with respect to the temporary removal of suffering, that's a much more kind of ground level intervention. I'm not doing some ideal theory there. I'm actually that's actually something that I think is probably feasible and. Uh, something that, you know we could technically ach- that we were are able to achieve given what we've already done with gene editing technology, and I think it's also something that's probably safe because it I don't think it would have really very major repercussions on on ecosystems where where we do it as long as the as long as it's temporary as long as you can make it the case that our shad just will regain the ability to suffer after a few weeks the ecological repercussions are probably fairly small given that they would still be able to feel mere pain they'd still have various avoidance behaviors. Um, mm-hmm. I I think, I think that that would just, I think maybe in the sort of medium term or something like that, that kind of intervention is really promising. Um,
0: Yeah. I mean, it certainly sounds more plausible than the others just seem like so massive, like basically mean, you know, we, we just need to, um, change the makeup of our entire, of the entire natural world, um, with intention rather than, you know, the way we're doing it now through through global warming. yeah that I mean that's uh, I, you know obviously the the actual practicalities of carrying it out but I mean from a, at a purely sort of hypothetical level it seems like yeah you know if there were kind of a way to to spray something you know over the entire globe that would that would accomplish this um you know why would we not do it right um yeah yeah um well, so is this the sort of thing that you know i mean uh, you know like I mentioned uh before I mean these sorts of considerations are are just not on the radar pretty much for you know animal welfareists or you know advocates um you know when it comes to wild animals the the what you're talking about for with with nature you know is something. We should, you know, preserve um, as it is, right? We want to set aside land. We want to keep the humans out and let nature do its do do its thing because nature is good, right? Um, um, so, uh, you know, if you're if you're right, you know, and, and we should be exploring these, you know, some sorts of like you know much more active intervention and not this hands-off strategy that, that people seem to think. Um, you know, is, is that, I mean, should, should advocates of animal welfare or things start, you know, kind of transferring their energies to, to this, um, right. as opposed to something else or what they right. already okay. do?
1: Right. Okay. Um, so my, my view on, on that is that, um, right now it probably would be unwise for, um, animal advocacy groups to be advocating for for anything too dramatic so um, uh, you know suppose that a bunch of animal advocacy groups decide that these that wild animal suffering is a big deal and that we should do something major about it to try and try and remove it um, I think it would be given just the state of like public opinion right now uh, and how counterintuitive people find ideas like turning our strategists into case strategists or turning carnivores into herbivores I don't think it makes a whole lot of sense for advocacy groups to start pumping out pamphlets that advocate for those things or, or anything like that, because um, I think people would just be like, oh, anim- the animal rights view is ridiculous if it implies this, or you know, caring about wild animals is ridiculous if it implies these that these sorts of interventions, and it'll just turn people off. They won't pay attention though, and they'll uh, and there's just a lot. There'll be a lost opportunity for doing some good there. Um, so so I think what I think what ne- the best thing for advocacy groups to be doing right now is doing groundwork kind of stuff. So I think a, a, a certain amount of work needs to be done before we could successfully advocate for for large-scale, something like large-scale genetic interventions in nature. Um, and I think the kind of groundwork is partially, is already kind of being done. Um, so advocacy groups are already doing things like trying to get people to go vegan. They're already um, trying to get people to appreciate that sentience matters, that, um, that, that it arguably is the right criterion for inclusion in the moral community um, And um, I think that you know these sorts of advocacy efforts, um, advocacy for including animals for, for accepting that sentient animals are part of the moral community, advocacy for um, changing your own behavior so that we're not contributing to like really massive anthropogenic harms to animals as much. Um, I think that this this kind of advocacy, Uh, is useful for changing people's attitudes and behaviors in ways that probably will make them more likely to care about wild animal suffering at all. Um, So if you're someone who accepts that animals are part of the moral community, that sentience makes uh, a a being morally important. Um, And if you've done the work necessary to sort of resolve cognitive dissonance and uh, change your behavior so that you're not harming animals yourself so much anymore. I think you're, you know, as far as advocacy groups are successfully producing people like this, um, then they're, they're also producing people who are more likely to be people who will care about wild animal suffering, as, you know, if they're confronted with the issue. Um, so I think that's I think that kind of thing is useful. I think just what advocacy groups are already doing is useful, um, but I think there is some room for also for direct advocacy pertaining to wild animal suffering. But I think that it should be um, kind of done in a modest fashion. So I think I think what insofar as anyone wants to, and there are actually some there are some groups that are working directly on wild animal suffering right now. There's a a growing segment of the effective altruism mo- movement that is interested in wild animal suffering and is trying to raise awareness about it, um, and also trying to research interventions. Um, and uh, if anyone who wants to look, look into it, uh, if there's anyone who want, who's interested in looking into this, um, two major effective altruism organizations that are working on wild animal suffering are um, Animal Ethics, a group called Animal Ethics, and a group called Wild Animal Initiative. Um, and then, uh, to a lesser extent, also a group called Rethink Priorities is is interested in um, uh, wild animal suffering. But 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 anyway, so these these groups are not these groups are not advocating for uh, massive genetic interventions uh, that would turn like herbivores into or sorry carnivores into herbivores or uh, R-strategists into k strategists. They t- they're usually advocating for other things, um, usually for more more the sort of like medium scale interventions that I mentioned earlier. So things like vaccinating wild animals against diseases or uh, trying to remove remove parasites that, that affect wild animals so you know eliminate parasites or, or reduce parasite populations um, and they, they advocate for other things too but they tend to be more sort of like medium scale interventions and uh, and I think that's good because it's much easier to get people on board with medium scale interventions that don't completely overhaul nature <laughs> than it is to get them on board with really sort of dramatic ones so so I think that's that I think they're doing the right thing right now I think these groups are appropriately focusing right now on, on awareness raising, about raising awareness about the severity and pervasiveness of wild animal suffering. And, and I think they're appropriately focused on advocating for a sort of small and medium scale interventions rather than the really big dramatic ones.
0: Right. And I mean, it just, it just occurred to me, you know, the, the dramatic ones in a way, um, I mean, this is kind of a conceptual issue. Um, you know, nature stops being wild once we start intervening in those ways right i mean in in a way in a way it sounds like you know at least for the you know vaccinating wild animals is you know is is one thing uh intervening in their genetics even if it's just to uh you know keep them from from suffering for for the first three weeks of life and then you know then they go back to normal still seems to be a way of like actually like in in effect, domesticating everything. (laughs) Um, Is is that at all a a problem? Like, you know, I mean, uh, we're already in this anthropogenic or not anthropogenic. um,
1: Uh, Anthropocene?
0: Yeah, Yeah. the anthropocene or whatever um, era where, you know, the entire globe is now, you know, essentially under our control, you know, in the sense of, you know everything we do now is affecting the entire globe there's no part of the globe that is not you know implicated in affected by human activity yeah and um and that just this just sort of deepens the the anthropocene and right. i just wonder if people would find that objectionable just you know yeah just just from the get go um and right. maybe it's the artificial value of nature, or maybe it's just something else like, you know, we, we shouldn't, we, we have a moral obligation to stop suffering, but we also have an obligation not to, you know, stick our noses everywhere.
1: Right. Well, so I, I think that, um, if one adopts the sort of view of nature that I argue for in the book, then you should have not in principle, you should have nothing against doing something like trying to remove our strategists capacity to suffer for the first few weeks of their lives. Um, and insofar as anyone does have an objection to that, if it, it, there's a good chance that it's it's just because you haven't you haven't yet removed your sort of naturalness-related intuitions from your brain, uh, and you need to sort of adjust <laughs> those intuitions over time or something like that. But I think uh, I think one thing that's worth noting is that um, uh, so some, I think sometimes people get sort of confused two different things. Um, it's easy to confuse I think naturalness with something like wildness or um, liberty for wild animals. So I think. Um, one thing that matters quite a lot, I think, is wild animals being free to live their lives. And when you think about domestication or, or putting animals in zoos or whatever, that, that, I think that, that sort of thing is, obje- is objectionable. Domesticating animals or putting them in zoos is, is objectionable. And the reason it's objectionable is because you're interfering with their liberties to a large extent. Um, and you're right. interfering, interfering with wild animals' liberties on a, la- on a large scale it's bad for wild animals. Uh, it's, well, it's bad for, at least for competent wild animals, animals that are able to competently manage dangers of their environment. Um, because right. such wild animals yeah. need their liberty to, to, to flourish. Um, well, I think it's, what it's,
0: it's, 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 yeah. it's, I mean, just to put it in the, the same point is, you know, we're very, very, very jealous of our own autonomy. Right. Right. I mean, autonomy, you know the autonomy of each individual human is extreme. You know, huge issue at every step of every. You know, uh, you know any ethical discussion. Right. And it seems like we are not treating wild animals the way we ought to if we are not granting that they too have autonomy.
1: Right. Yeah. No. I, so I think I think that that's right. Um, but I, I think I'd I'd note two things um, with respect to intervention in nature um, and, and its relationship with uh, respect for wild animals' autonomy. Um, One thing I I think I'd note is that um, it's important to recognize that if if we fully appreciate what the R strategy implies, most individual wild animals born into the world are not actually competent. They're not able to manage the dangers of of their environment. And as a result, their liberty is not valuable to them, or it's not valuable to them at least until they develop competence, the competence necessary to successfully lead good lives on their own. Um, So... Insofar as liberty matters at all, um, it's, it's not going to be something that's going to prevent us from trying to help the um, really young R strategists who are dying after a week. I mean, um, we, we think, you know, we, we think with human children and whatnot, um, uh, helping, such, uh, helping human children, uh, even if it involves a lot of interference with their liberty, is, is fine. As long as the, the interference stops at some point, right, uh, at the point where they're able to competently manage the dangers of, of life. Um, so I think I'd I'd note I take note of that, but also I want to point out that um, when people think about large scale intervention in nature, uh, usually what they initially have in mind is um, something like a, a large scale use of conventional wildlife management. Um, so basically turning nature into something that looks like a zoo. Um, so pro- when uh, I think and that's initially what when, when people in the earlier fi- uh, bits of the of the literature on, on wild animal suffering often. That's what authors had in mind. The large-scale intervention was assumed to be a matter of doing something like fencing off predators from, from uh, prey, uh, uh, restricting the liberties of, of predators to prevent them from attacking prey, um, uh, diving in and, uh, and maybe tr- caring for our strategists offspring that can't care for themselves, and then sterilizing the other R-strategists or, uh, or whatever. Um, uh, these sorts of interventions, like really sort of manage, wildlife management kind of interventions that, uh, look, that look rather like turning nature into a zoo. I think that's often what people had in mind initially. And I think I agree that that, that kind of scenario, a scenario where we've turned nature into a big zoo, is really counterintuitive. It's not. It's not it might not be a good one. Um, but, but that's not what I'm advocating for with gene editing. Um, gene editing involves some liberty infringement, some infringements on wild animals' liberties. But the only liberties it infringes upon are the liberties of animals who unfortunately have to be experimented upon for the sake of developing um, beneficent genetic interventions. Um, With gene editing, we don't need to experiment on all wild animals or anything like that in order to um, give them beneficial genetically engineered traits. We only need to experiment on a very, very small subset of a target population. You can experiment on a few and then develop a laboratory population of maybe 100 animals or something like that. And after that, you can just release the animals into the wild. And those animals will pass on the genetically engineered trait to almost all of their offspring. They'll they'll mate with other wild animals. Um, They'll they'll have offspring. And those offspring will have have the trait. Um, This is called doing a gene drive. And it's something that we're able to do with current genetic technology. We can make traits such that they will just get passed on to almost all offspring. And so we, we're not actually, if we do this gene editing approach, we're not actually turning nature into a zoo. We're not interfering with the liberties of, of all the wild animals in nature. We're only interfering with the liberties of those few animals who have to get stuck in the, in the laboratory. When, and I agree that it's, you know, we, it's bad to experiment on animals, but I think that the severity of, of wild animal suffering justifies some moral costs.
0: Okay. Um, yeah. We are uh, over time at this point. Um, so just to wrap up quickly, um, uh, what's what are you working on now? Are you following up with further work on this issue or something else?
1: Oh Sure. Um, yeah, so um, I'm organizing a symposium about about the book that I just talked about um, It's going to be uh, online uh, Help held over zoom. I think and it's sponsored by um, Apple uh, the, Apple's uh, stands for animals and uh, philosophy politics law and ethics and and um, it, uh, it's a research group at Queens. So I'm I'm current. I did my PhD at Queens, and I'm an adjunct assistant professor there right now. And um, uh, and because I'm I'm there right now, I'm also part of this research group. And uh, it's it's a it's a research group organized by um, Sue Donaldson and Will Kimoka. And uh, yeah, so we're we're going to be doing this symposium about the book, and and hopefully we'll get the symposium papers uh, revised and published afterwards. But you know that that'll have to have to happen later. Um, I'm also uh, guest editing a topical collection for the journal of agricultural and environmental ethics. Um, and it's a topical collection about positive duties to wild animals. Um, and so it'll, yeah, it'll be a a variety of papers about uh, basically about wild animal suffering. Um, some of which will be sort of more pro interventionist some of which are more conservative, um, authors who are, who have agreed to contribute include, um, Jeff Sebo, um, Alistair Cochran, uh, Angie Pepper, uh, Oscar, Oscar Orta, um, Katya Faria, um, Josh Milburn. Yeah. The, I think that, I think that's all of them. Um, and a- anyways, uh, any, anyone who's listening, who knows about the animal ethics and the people who are writing in it probably recognize some of those names.
0: Great. Okay. Well, um, I wish you luck with these endeavors and, um, I thank you for talking with new books and philosophy for, uh, you know, a, a very interesting and provocative, uh, Conversation about a provocative book. So, thank you very much.
1: Thanks, Carrie. I appreciate it.